Well, I believe you came to worship, amen? Good to see all of you today, and welcome to Influence Church. I'm Phil Hotzenpeller, the senior pastor here, along with my wife, Tammy, and we welcome you to this time of uh, worship and praise. Uh, yet another week of peaceful protest. Amen. We are now seven plus months into the peaceful protest, and we are loving this season because the church is coming to understand what it means to be the church. Comfort and convenience, too many options create a soft people. Do not understand what it means to walk with the living God. But I believe these are times designed by God. The enemy would try to turn it to evil, but these are times when we become stronger and better at being the followers of Jesus Christ that we were meant to be, amen? So I wanna encourage you in your faith. I wanna encourage you to be bold. Uh, the Bible says that as time moves closer to the return of Christ, that Christians will shine brighter. That means the world will grow darker, that there will be a sorting out of those who truly know him and follow him. First John said that it becomes obvious because those who were not of us did not remain with us, for had they been of us, they would have remained with us. And you're going to see more and more people who have Christianity as a hobby fall off the map, and you're gonna see those who really understand their God walk in the power of the Spirit, understand the shedding of the blood of Christ for the cleansing of all sin. You're gonna see them grow stronger and stronger. I pray that each one of you are one of them and that you grow in your faith, amen? Yeah. Amen. So, as we, we're in a very strategic time in the history of our nation, have you noticed? We have gone through everything known to man, it seems, this year, but I remind you, we have a couple of months left. Um, my wife and I were talking, she said, what do you think's left? I said, the only thing I know is an invasion by China on the West Coast, that would top off the year. I'm not predicting that, I'm just saying, what else would you do? But the election this year is so critical because it's not about a personality, it's really about policies that are going to affect your life and your children's children's lives. Sometimes we get caught up in a personality and I don't like this president, I don't like that president. I don't know that I've ever liked any president. Maybe Reagan. But liking them is not the issue. I'm not looking for a buddy. I'm looking for someone who will stand on the Constitution, someone who will support what we believe in the First Amendment. I'm looking for someone who will bring goodness to our nation, stop abortion, amen? Globalization will erase our borders, sovereignty, and national identity. If you don't have borders, you don't have a nation. Genderism will turn our boys into girls and our girls into boys. Socialism will bankrupt America. Secularism will bury God. Environmentalism will close our factories. Elitism will strangle us with political correctness. Multiculturalism will magnify our differences, dividing us and making us weaker all the time. Islamism will grow and grow until it's powerful enough to grab everything. 
Leftism will enslave us with big government until enslaved by Islam itself. We are living in a day that had Abraham been able to look forward and see, he might have said this in this day, but he said it in his day. It is the duty of nations, said Abraham Lincoln, as well as men, to owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God and to recognize that sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures, proven by all of history, that those nations are only blessed whose God is the Lord. Can you say amen? We are living on a collision course. In Isaiah chapter five and verse 20, Isaiah the prophet understood something about the shell game that gets played with good and evil. He said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. You see, we've become so mixed up in understanding what is right and what is wrong that now that which is evil is called good and good is called evil. He went on to say, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In the book of Romans chapter one, it is prophetic in nature as well as doctrinal and, and helping us to understand what happens in our world, but it says there will be those who will suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Even though they know the truth, they will hold it down. It's the Greek word, I will hold it down so it doesn't get free, it doesn't get loose. Suppress the truth in unrighteousness, denying the very Godhead that created them, and they will exchange the truth for a lie. And then it goes on to say something about the way God deals with a society that does that. It says God will turn them over to a base mind. And what that means is that the ability to function with logic and understanding and reason begins to fade away. So things that seem out of kilter, things that seem wrong, now will seem right to those with a base mind. And it says they will move from there until they will stop worshiping the creator and they will worship the creature instead. A second time, God says, I will give them up to a base mind. And there is this degeneration that goes on when we walk away from God because God created you in his image that you might be holy body, soul, and spirit. And residing within your soulish man is your mind, your will, and your emotions. And so when you give up this understanding of God, the first thing that begins to be affected is your mind. When your mind is not functioning right, now your will is affected and you can't make right decisions. And then emotions follow what you made your decisions on. So a lot of people get caught up and they say, well, I'm just a very emotional person. It has nothing to do with that. Your emotions only follow your thought patterns, the decisions of your will, your volition, and then the emotions follow. So if you're out of whack emotionally, back up and say, what am I thinking about? That's why the Bible says that we need to have a renewed mind. We have a, need to have a mind that is shaped after the image of God so that we properly uh, can process information and then make good decisions in life, amen? We're living in a time of competing worldviews. That term worldview may be new to you, but I wanna walk you through this because our goal is for you to understand what a biblical worldview is 
and to operate within that framework of a biblical worldview. So the competing worldview, a worldview is a framework from which we view reality and make sense of our world that we live in. In other words, when you look at the world, how do you see it? Have you ever noticed that someone who may have a very different perspective and they see the same events and they look at it totally different? It's because they're looking at it from a different world view. Let me give you the three primary worldviews there are. I'll walk you through each one of those and explain them for you. The first one is naturalism, or we can also put in that category secularism. And what that is, that nothing exists other than the physical universe. So a person that buys into this would say, you know, there may be a God, they may be agnostic, they may say there, if there's a God, I can't know him, or they could be atheist that says there is no God. And the word agnostic is a word, when you put the A in front of it, like atheist, that means no God, A negates the word theology or God. When you put it in front of gnosis, which is a Greek word for knowledge, it says, I don't have any knowledge. So an agnostic, if you look in the Latin, it means an ignoramus. The Bible says, the fool has said there is no God. That's what the psalmist wrote. When I take God out, I become foolish in my thinking. So when we begin to think about naturalism, the secularists today, according to Pete uh, Hexleth, said, secularists today are conducting a seek and destroy mission against any institution that puts more faith in God than in government. This is the direction of Karl Marx. By the way, he said that religion is the opium of the masses. In other words, you're an addict to something that is not real. He believed that total destruction of all religion was necessary to achieve a proper communist society. And I would just remind you that socialism is the first step into communism. So if you are a naturalist, what you believe is you don't believe that God created the heavens and the earth. You believe that those came together through a big bang, through some natural process of evolution. That one day there was on planet earth a bunch of single cells that began to gather together. They began to grow a fin or a tail, and, and then over time they were able to kind of pull themselves up out of the primeval sludge, make their way up onto the beach, drop the tail and the fins, go to school, get a PhD, and become educated and teach your children. That's evolution. Evolution is a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. If that metaphor doesn't speak to you, look a little deeper. You see, when we, th when we take God out of the picture, what do we have left? Now, all of a sudden, if I'm a naturalist, now abortion is fine because that's not a human being. Now, the contradiction in this is that if you are pregnant, you can drive in the carpool lane as two people. You see what happens when a base mine enters in? The other part of it is if you get in a car accident with someone who is pregnant and they lose the baby, you are now ticketed for vehicular homicide. But I thought it wasn't a person. So laws become convenient rather than fixed. And we operate with this moving target all the time, not really knowing what is the law. 
If you have a biblical worldview that is secular in nature, what you've done is you separated yourself out from God, and all of a sudden now, creation becomes your God, and so we have the term Mother Earth. Well, I've never met her, but I'm pretty sure she doesn't exist. And now everything becomes about our environment. I believe we should be, as Christians, the most concerned with our environment because God created it. I'm one of those guys that picks up trash in the parking lot that I didn't put down. We should be environmentalists, but not to the expense of the souls of men and women, boys and girls, and for the freedom that we enjoy as Americans in this world, amen? The second idea, the second worldview is pantheism, and, and you see that word pan, that means all things, and you've got the word theist there, or theism, that's a Greek word for God. We take theology, this is all theology, so the idea is this is all God. So if you're a follower of Hinduism, then you're a pantheist. What that means is literally everything is a God, and we've got this American version of of pantheism or Hinduism that operates here. And we will hear someone say, well yeah, I was, uh, I was actually reincarnated. I used to be a high priestess in some country. You know, nobody's ever a peasant. Have you ever noticed that? When they discover who they are, then they were never like peasants and abused. They were just, no, I was a, I was a priestess. But we've Americanized it to the place because classic Hinduism says that you can actually be an inanimate object and then you can transmigrate into a human being. Now, an inanimate object would be, I once was a rock. But now I'm a human being. The logic of that doesn't work real well, does it? If everything becomes a God, then you have to be careful about everything because your chair you're sitting on, you should be very careful and, and, and exercise care that you don't hurt the God that you're sitting on. So illogical is pantheism that in classic Hinduism, they believe there's a colony of people living on the other side of the sun. Now how long do they live? Do you see the, the illogic in this? We sing you must be born again, but the pantheist says you must be born again and again and again and again and again because you've got this long string and hopefully you'll find your, break your way out of the caste system that you're locked into. So you come in as an untouchable, a lower class, and through doing the right things, you find your way up and you begin to move up all the way into the Brahmin class, and now you are the top of the food chain. When we were in India, we, we watched cows walk by, honored as gods, while hungry people died in the streets, because that god could not be touched. And so what's connected to it is this, this concept that we can't eat meat because the, the cows that we eat, they are gods. So we get an American version of it and we call it a vegetarian. Not even thinking that we might be tying into some kind of a religion because there was a clear command in Genesis chapter nine to kill and eat meat and there was a reason for that which we don't have time to go in today, but I love to keep you hanging. So everything exists is God, oneness, inner peace, harnessing peace in the universe. So if we just get the right karma happening around here, everything is gonna be fine. 
Right now, karma is upset, so we, we, we got dis, disarray going on. You've probably seen the Taoist uh, symbol, the, the black and the white fish chasing each other's tail. That is the idea of reincarnation. Everything is going around and around and around and around. But the biblical view is that God created time and space. It started here. It begins to move down a pathway that God has designed, and one day it will be culminated with the return of Christ and the establishment of this new kingdom. All three of these worldviews are radically different. And which one you tie into is gonna make a big difference in your life. So the third one is theism. Theism. That's the idea that God is a source of everything that exists. A biblical worldview holds the Bible as the absolute truth. It's not a truth. It's not one of many religious books. It is the truth. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father by him, he was very exclusive. He said, there are no other religions that are gonna get you to the Father. I came across this chart in, uh, that Barna did recently. I wanna show it to you and I wanna walk you through. It's called the New Spirituality. So in the New Spirituality, what they did was they looked at uh, this, uh, these three questions here, and then they looked at it from a perspective of age and a perspective of whether you lived in the city, the suburb, or rural. And you notice that your, your tendency to be more on the liberal side, you're gonna live in a very urban setting and then it begins to move down to where you're in suburban and then ultimately in rural. So here's the first question. All people pray to the same God or spirit no matter what name they use for that spiritual being. And you notice here that under 45, 33%, I agree with that. Uh, over 45, 26% said, I agree with that. And then you can see down below how it indicated whether they lived in the suburb or in the urban areas or in the rural areas. Now, let me tell you what's wrong with this. Some people say, well, isn't the God of Islam the same God of the Bible? Absolutely not. Allah is the moon God of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. That's why whenever you see a, a mosque, it'll have a, a crescent moon on the top of it because Allah was the moon God. It's not the same God. They are not praying to the same God at all, not even close, okay? Second question, meaning and purpose come from becoming one with all that is. So the idea is that this is a very pantheistic idea that is caught up in Eastern uh, re religion. So the idea here is that if I can just get in oneness, if I can just have good karma, if I can just get alignment with everybody and everything, then what's gonna happen is I'm gonna become one with the universe. I'm gonna function really, really well in life. You'll notice uh, here's the, the, the way they looked at it here. They looked at it from, uh, in terms of ethnicity, black, Hispanic, white, under 45, and uh, over uh, 45. Let's go to the third question. If you do good, you will receive good. If you do bad, you'll receive bad. Now, some Christians kind of get caught up in this. They think that uh, if they always do everything right, everything will go well for them. That's bad theology. The problem is it would work really well if you weren't human and you didn't exist. But things don't exist in vacuums, do they? They exist in real life. So whenever a Christian goes through a difficult time, one of the first things they will say is, well, I, I thought God loved me, I thought God was watching over me, I've done everything right, I've, I've gone and I've endured you know, 2,000 of Pastor Phil's sermons, that should get me a little something here. Um, you know, I give my money, I help feed the poor, I do all these kind of things, and we think that we're operating on a mathematical formula that says this equals this. That's not how life works. 
You see, when sin came into the world, what it did is it affected every one of us. So it gave us the freedom of choice, but unfortunately, we don't always, always make good choices, do we? Nor do the people around us make good choices. And so we're living in that dimension of the freedom of choice, but we have another problem too, and that is the Bible says that in the day that you eat of it, that is when you choose to follow after the enemy versus God, it says you will die. But you're very much alive today, but you're in the process of reaching the end of your life, whether you live to be 80, 90, or 200 years old, it doesn't matter. You're still in the process of ending life because you're a physical being that is flawed by sin. And that's why, you know, we work really hard to try to avoid the consequences of the fall of man, don't we? I mean, we do everything. I mean, I, 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 I haven't done this, but I mean, I guess you go get a facelift, you get a little Botox shot, you get a little something. Why do we do that? Because we don't like what sin does to us. It has a consequence. For me, I just get dimmer light bulbs. I look better. I tell the camera people, at 200 yards and dim lights, I look good. Don't zoom in on me. But you see, that's all a part of life, isn't it? That we are, we, are, we are designed to age and we're designed to come to the end of this life, not to fall in love with this life. Why, why is it that Ponce de Leon was looking for the fountain of youth? Because he recognized his own frailty as a human being. And so we're going through that. A biblical worldview says God began this world, God will end this world, God has a divine plan, and God will bring about newness in our world through the new Jerusalem, and, and God will reign as King and King and Lord of Lords for all eternity and every tongue and every nation and every, will, will give him praise and give him glory for all eternity. A worldview says there is a heaven, there is a hell. So I don't think hell is, fa is, is really fair. Well, think about this. You as a believer long for heaven. Why? Because God's there. People you know who love God are there. There's not sickness there. There's not problems there. You go like, that fits me, right? I, f I fit into that world. That's a good environment for me to go into. But think about it this way. If I don't have that worldview, that sounds horrible. That's like going to church seven days a week, 24 hours a day. If, I have, if I'm, if I'm anti-God, I don't wanna be with God, so hell is a place for people who are anti-God. They're more comfortable there than they would be in heaven. But they made that choice to say, I don't want God in my life. But do you think it's really fair? Well, I don't think anything in fair is life. When my kids were little, they'd holler, it's not fair, and I would just agree with them. Why try to, why try to deal with a little terrorist? <laughs> he got this for Christmas, I didn't get this for Christmas, it's not fair, and I go, I know, I know. Sometimes I like some of you better than the other ones. I don't know why, I just, why don't we just be honest with our kids? You know, you're, just, you're not as likable as the other two. <laughs> Have you ever asked this question, which one's your favorite? And then the kids will go, the, the kids will go what, I know I'm your favorite, right? And then what do you do? You're like ultimate PC comment. No, I love you all the same. But down deep you're going, yeah, but I really don't. Some of you make me so mad. True Christianity is radical. If you're really gonna be a Christian, you're gonna be, be really radical. 
If you want to just play it as a game and a hobby, you know, and then you're just fair weather Christian, then you're not radical. Jesus was so radical that they put him on a cross and his friends betrayed him. That's how radical Jesus was. He wasn't considered radical because he claimed to be the Messiah. Many people claim to be the Messiah. He wasn't considered radical because he was working miracles. He was considered radical because, according to the Jews, their words, you being man, make yourself out to be God. He claimed to be God in the flesh. That's a biblical worldview. They said, for that, we're going to kill you. Those who follow that kind of person are radical. They say, we believe that God became man, was born in human flesh, walked on the earth after three years, he died on a cross, he was buried, three days later he rose from the dead to give us eternal life, and we are his followers, and his spirit comes to live in us. That's pretty radical. Would you agree? Pretty radical. That's a lot more radical than going to church when it's convenient. Here's what Jesus said. Not everyone, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So the criteria here is not saying Jesus is Lord. The criteria is saying Jesus is Lord and doing the will of the Lord. If I bypass the will of the Lord, then am I a Christian? If I, over, if I just kind of step over his commandments, am I really a Christian? We have to ask these hard questions because there's nothing more dangerous than being deceived in our faith. Matthew 7, 14. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life and there are few that find it. That's radical. I believe as you get closer to the end of the age, the gate gets narrower. We have in our major cities something called Broadway. Isn't it interesting? Have you ever thought about the origin of the term Broadway? It was actually a term that was coined to counter the Christian message of the narrow way, the narrow gate. No, there's not a narrow gate. There's a Broadway, and on Broadway, we're going to put all of our best stores. We're going to put all of the things that, that you like to see and buy and consume because we want to take you away from the narrow way the narrow gate. He says here the gate is narrow and it's difficult. So it's not just easy. Well, I thought well, if I got to be a Christian, everything would be easy. Who told you that? Jesus said they've hated me, they're gonna hate you. That doesn't sound like fun. I don't know how you came to faith in Christ, but I was a college student, I was a pre-law student, and I started reading this book on the return of Christ and it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> Literally. I don't think you say hell in the Bible. Well, Jesus wrote about it. What happened? I was confronted with the reality I was gonna be separated from God for all eternity. That Christ was gonna come back and I wasn't gonna go with him. That shook me up. Now other people, they get saved by a whole different process. They just get loved into the kingdom. I wish I'd have had that experience. God loves you, I, me too. I know, I'm so glad. And I just get saved. Not me, he said, Phil, we gotta rattle him a little bit. We gotta show him the return of Christ. We gotta talk about separation. We gotta do all that kind of stuff. And it just sunk in my heart. I, said, I don't want that, God. I wanna be with you for all eternity. How do I follow you? And it was difficult. 
I was in my, I went back to my university class there at UNC and, and I was in a political science class with over 600 students. And I was really naive as a Christian. And the professor said, how many of you are Christians? Just stand up. And I thought he was like a Christian and he was gonna affirm us. And three of us stood up. And then the professor said this, I want you to look around class, there are three of the biggest fools you will ever meet in your university experience. That's what happens on the universities today and even worse. We're training our students to hate God in many, many cases, not love the Lord their God with all their heart, their mind, their soul, and their strength. Every Ivy League school except one was founded by Christians to train preachers. Harvard, Brown, just go through the list. Princeton, all of them. And what we did was we just took our hand off the throttle and we forgot to watch what was happening. And we kept sending our kids and spending, giving more and more money to the schools that were taking them down the wrong path. And because we said every kid needs to be educated, I believe that, but not every kid needs to be educated in the ways of anti-God. Amen? C.S. Lewis was a professor at Oxford. He was greatly persecuted during his time there. He wrote a book, his testimony, called Surprised by Joy, and in that book he talked about his, his finding God. He said two of the smartest guys on campus, one was C.S. Chesterton. He said he's absolutely the most smartest person on Oxford campus, and I was so discouraged the day I found out he was a Christian. The second was J.R.R. Tolkien. You might remember him, the Lord of the Rings. When he said, when I found that, I realized that I was like running in an open field and I was being pursued by God. And I finally gave up and stopped running from God and became a Christian. And Chesterton, Tolkien, and C.S. Lewis would sit in a little pub down in Oxford and they said, how can we sneak God into literature? Think about that. How, do we, how are we gonna be crafty as a, as a serpent and innocent as a dove in the process? The Lord of the Rings is all about Jesus, by the way, if you read the book. C.S. Lewis, look what he did. The writings he did, he said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Leonard Ravenhill said, if there's a million roads to hell, there's not one road out. I believe the risk is worth the reward. I've been a Christian now since college days, which is back when the earth was cooling. And I've never seen God unfaithful to me. I've had times when I did not understand what he was up to, where I was frustrated with his last minute rescues. I'd like him to act a little quicker, a little faster, get me through the tough things without pain, but he knew exactly what he was doing. Revelation chapter three and verse seven, Jesus speaks to the church at Philadelphia. It's the one church in the entire, among the seven churches of Revelation where he has no condemnation. He has only encouragement. I wanna be the church of Philadelphia, how about you? Amen? Listen, I'm just gonna give you a few words. He said this, these things says he who is holy, who is true, 
who has the key of David. He opens and no one shuts, and he shuts and no one opens. I want you to think about what he said. God says, when I open a door for you, no one can shut it. When I close a door, don't try to go through it. Amen? You see, sometimes we say, well, I've got 40 open doors. Try to go through them and see how many are open. I have so many opportunities. Try to go through them and see how many have worked. You see, many of the plans of men, Proverbs says, but God directs the path. You might have many plans. God says, make your plans. You should do that. That's good human planning. But ultimately, yield that to the hand of God. Let God direct your steps, amen? He says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna open some doors for you and I'm gonna close some doors. Just watch. You have to be living in the presence of God to know what God is up to. You can't get in crisis mode and figure it out. You see, sometimes we always wait to the last minute. You know, and you, somebody will come to me and say, well, I've got all this, I've got all this. Can you just pray and I can, so I can have? I said, dude, you've, like, you've had five years to work on this one. Let's just be honest. We get so, so used to the drive through restaurants that we miss out. God doesn't work that way. He wants to cultivate in you a long-term relationship whereby you understand the heart of the Father and some things you don't even have to pray about because you are so linked in with the mind of Christ, the will of God, you just operate automatically. You just go, no, this is what I need to do. I know I don't even have to pray about this one. Some things you've got to pray about because you haven't invested enough time in that matter, in that subject, or the opportunity demands more of you than you pour yourself into that. God is raising children for the eternal kingdom. He has an eternal, your eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, he says. I have made you sons and daughters. I have made you kings and priests in my kingdom. That's what he calls you, a king and a priest in my kingdom. You're gonna reign with me for all eternity. When the disciples said, who's gonna set it, grant us to set it the right or the left of you, he said, I cannot give these, but these will be given. Do you realize there's gonna be some saint in some eternity that's gonna sit at the right hand of the Father? And I almost can guarantee you it won't be somebody who is on the stage of popularity. It'll probably be some lady, little grandma, that prayed and moved mountains. Amen? Revelation 3.8, I know your works. Think about that. He's looking at you right now and said, I know your works. I know everything you do. Not everything you think, you think, well, you try to, sometimes all of us, we try to project greater faithfulness than we really have, don't we? You ever think, God looks deep inside you and says, I know your works. I know what you're up to. I'm keeping a record, I'm keeping a book, and I'm gonna reward you on the basis of, of those works. He said, I know your works. And I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and not denied my name. What does he say? He sums it all up, he says, look at it. He says, you've kept my word and not denied my name. Are you keeping the word of God? So I'd never deny the name of God. Do you deny it by just silence? Sometimes we, you know, if somebody says, are you a Christian? You say, yes. You follow Christ? You say, yes. 
But are you denying it when you don't initiate the conversation and talk about Jesus? That's what he's talking about. I, I thank God that now for, since May 31st, that our church has been open and that you've been here and, and, uh, and you've gone against the grain. Your counterculture just showing up. The governor said, don't meet. And I go, who, what? I don't remember him being my Lord and Savior. Influence has held strong to the Word of God through this time. We have persevered. It hasn't been easy. I'm going to tell you, it has not been easy to be open. We've persevered. We've spent more money on cleaning things and protecting things and arranging things and changing things and pivoting. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's a daily occurrence around here. You have no idea. We're working twice as hard as we ever have. But you know what? We're, we're just so grateful. All of our staff, just so grateful. We didn't lay anybody off through COVID. Revelation 3.10, you have kept my command to persevere. Did you ever think about perseverance as a command of God? Perseverance is a command of God. It's not an option. I don't wanna, I mean, you imagine this? Sunday morning, Tammy comes in and says, it's time to go to church. I don't wanna go today. I'm tired. Can I just watch online? She, no, you're preaching today. Oh, can't we run an old sermon? Persevere. What, you know what perseverance means? It means you do what you wanna do but don't wanna do for a long time. Everybody wants to give up sometimes, amen? I just want, I'm just tired, I'm tired, ah. Oh, persevere, persevere, push through, push through, push through, push through every situation you find yourself. You're at work, it's hard, push through. You're raising a family, push through. You're, you're telling people about Jesus, push through, persevere. It's a command of God, amen? It's a command of God. And he said, look, if you persevere, now watch this. This is where, you're getting ahead of me on clapping, get ready, hold on. This next part's gonna be a clapping section. Okay, ready. You've kept my command to persevere. I will keep you from the hour of trial. Now you clap. You persevered, guess what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna keep you from the hour of trial. What if I don't persevere? Yeah, you're screwed. What it means is, I don't have the promise of protection if I don't persevere. That's what it's saying. You see, we've mixed up the English language. It says, you know, there's a scripture in Psalm where it says, he, will, he shall shelter you under the wings and guard you under the Almighty. Oh, that's what I want. The word shall has been changed in our English language to will. Shall and will do not mean the same thing. Shall is a conditional word, meaning based on your response. Will is God will, regardless of your response. If you change the English language, 
then the Bible all of a sudden becomes your little tool to get through everything you want, and then you're frustrated because why isn't God protecting me and sheltering me under his wings? Because he said he would. No, he said he would in your new translation, but that's not what the English language says. You shall, he shall do that. Interesting, huh? Now look at this, he will keep you, here's the promise, will, notice the word keep, protect, you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world, why? To test those who dwell on the earth. So God's gonna bring trial on the earth, some are gonna be protected and some aren't who are followers of Jesus. I love it when it gets quiet, I don't know what it means but I love it. Revelation 3.11. Hold fast, hold fast to what you have. What's he talking about? That no one may take your crown. Do you realize that when you persevere and when you do good works, you have a crown? Hold fast. Why? Because somebody's gonna try to take your crown. It could be your neighbor, it could be your friend. It could be the Christian brother who says, you know what, you're, you're too serious. Why are you so fanatical about this stuff? You don't even have to go to church every week. Why are you tithing? What? Forget all that stuff. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. You're gonna be okay. He says, hold fast. No one may take your crown. You see, the command to hold fast to what you have is a serious statement by God. Why? Because crowns are being targeted by the enemies of God. Satan knows he can't take your eternal soul. What's he gonna take? He's gonna take your crown. Well, what do you say? I just wanna to get to heaven. I don't care about the crowns. Do you know what the crowns are for? The crowns are to take off your head and cast at the feet of Jesus, it says in Revelation 4 and 5, and sing worthy is the lamb. It is to give him glory, honor, and power recognition. Some crowns are being forfeited during this season of testing. I believe there are Christians who've given up crowns. I believe there are Christian leaders who've given up crowns. Last week we quoted the scripture from Jeremiah. I just wanna remind you of this one. It says, if you have run with men and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if it's a safe land you fall down, how will you do in the jungles of the Jordan? If you can't persevere in this season, what are you gonna do when the hour of trial comes upon the, the earth? These are testing times to make you stronger. Amen? Will you stand? Will you stand for Jesus? That's the question. The first stand you take is a stand to say, I'm a believer. I wanna follow Jesus, I wanna be saved, I wanna come into the kingdom of God, I wanna be born again, I wanna be regenerated. All these are same terms, mean same thing. The question is, do you know for certain that there was a time in your life when you said yes to Christ and he saved your eternal soul? Not maybe, not hope so, but a, a no-so kind of relationship. If not, I'm gonna ask you to have that no-so kind of relationship this morning before you leave this place. You can do that with a prayer. It's, I can give you the words, but only you can give the faith to it. It goes like this, dear Lord Jesus, just repeat after me. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. You paid the price for my sin. 
You shed your blood for the cleansing of my sin. You died a real death. You were put in a tomb, and for three days, you were in that tomb. But then, by the miraculous hand of God, the stone was rolled away. You came forth victorious and alive to give me eternal life. I receive eternal life from you. I crown you my King and my Lord this day, Lord Jesus. And now I invite your spirit to infill me, to indwell me, to make me a part of the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, the fellowship of the saints for all eternity. Amen. If that was your prayer, if that was your prayer, then God saved your soul. Amen. And now you have the responsibility to tell others about that decision you made every day. So I'm not a Bible scholar. You don't have to be. Just say, look, I, I can't give you any answers other than I was lost, now I'm saved, and I'm happy. You don't have to get in debate with anybody. I love Jesus. I love Jesus.